Good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today's examination of Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus will take us into some very interesting territory. We'll take a look at the Magi and their interaction with King Herod after following the sign that God gave them in the heavens. Thanks for listening today as we see that there are really only two responses to Jesus's kingship and we evaluate who are we most characterized by? The kingdom rule of men like Herod or the kingdom rule of Jesus like the wise men? Uh, there are only two kingdoms that are available to us on earth. You will find yourself bifurcated either towards the kingdom of men or the kingdom of God. And it's kind of like an either or op- option here. Like which door are you going to choose? Because you can't have both. At every stage at which we would serve the kingdom of men, what we will find is that we will actually be in, uh, disabling ourselves from bringing glory to God. And at every stage that we pledge the entirety of our hearts towards the kingdom of God, we will be lessening the glory of man. Hopefully that makes sense to you. Hopefully you've heard me mention this before. Hopefully we're doing good at keeping track of this grid work that the scriptures outline between one of two options. It's either going to be man's work, man's name, man's ability, and therefore glory and effort. Or it's going to be God's name that's lifted high. What he has done, his work and reputation. It's one or the other. Uh, This very easily uh, can be understood in Jesus's phrase in the New Testament. You cannot serve two masters. You can't serve two. I'm sometimes surprised, even in my own life, how easy it is for us to be fooled. Do you ever think about this? How, how, how easily are you and I fooled into misprioritizing those kingdoms? I know at least in my own heart, I don't do it intentionally. I'm not, I'm not trying to devalue God. I just am so susceptible to a sale on Amazon. I'm just, I'm just so easily led astray by whatever someone else might offer, right? It's, it's, it's subtle and it's slick. And I don't even realize the ways sometimes that I have somehow moved over to the wrong door and now I'm thinking more highly either about myself or some other person in the place of God. This is what I want us to be careful with this morning. And we're going to be in a story in the New Testament um, that helps us to see a group of individuals who do this better than maybe anyone else in the story of Jesus and the Gospels. We're going to be looking at the Magi uh, and unpacking uh, as as, um, efficiently as we can that story in Matthew chapter 2. You'll recall from last Sunday, we were looking at Jesus seen in his kingship based upon an Old Testament um, uh, an Old Testament quotation that's given out of Isaiah. That Jesus is going to be named Jesus, Yeshua. It's close analog in English to Joshua. It means that the Lord saves. 
And this was to fulfill what Isaiah said, that the virgin will be with child, will give birth, and you will call him. Do you remember? What was that special word? And what's Emmanuel mean? It means God is with us. And so we are, we are studying God's, uh, Jesus' kingship and recognizing Jesus as the champion in our lives. Today we're going to be continuing the theme of Jesus' kingship. Now looking at how these, these individuals from the East have come. And what are they doing? And how are they handling that? And um, as I've been studying this, I need to just begin by letting you know, this is a doozy this morning. Like, I, I felt like in my study, you should have seen my desk. I, don't, I didn't have enough room for all of the books that I had open studying this because there's so many moving pieces when you start to talk about the Magi. I mean, you've got historical references from Babylon and Persia. You've got scientific revelations based upon the nature of the star that's in the sky and what's happening. There's so much that's happening. I feel like this is like a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> There's a lot of pieces that we're going to try to package together best we can this morning. But if you've ever done a jigsaw puzzle, you know how long they take. So we're going to go as quick as we can. Um, I think what I'd like to do is read through the passage first and then cover some notable corrections to our nativity sets. That'll be fun. Uh, And then we'll work through some observations and conclusions. So uh, if you're with me, Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Matthew records, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where's the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet had written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way. The star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Well, dump out the puzzle right there's all the pieces. There's so much to talk about. Uh, first of all, let's make a couple of corrections here. How many wise men were there? 
<laughs> Does it say? It doesn't say. All it tells us is how many, it actually doesn't tell us how many gifts. It tells us three different categories of gifts that they brought. But we, we actually don't know how many wise men there are. So your little nativity set with one, two, three right there, well... I don't know. Maybe could have been could have been many more. In fact, one of the commentators suggests that it was a whole band of travelers. In that, if you look back with me in verse three, it says, "When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed." And look at this: all Jerusalem with him. Apparently, this was enough individuals traveling to make a bu- a bunch of ruckus in Jerusalem that the entire city was aware of it. So, seems like likely more than three. A couple of other things that are notable here. Many times when we think of the infancy narratives, we combine Luke's account with Matthew's account. The difference is Luke's account is all about Christmas Day. It is the birth of Jesus. Well, where was the birth of Jesus in our reading this morning for Matthew's account? Did you, did you find it? It's not even there. Uh, you, you have uh, the end of chapter 1. Um, he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And then chapter two starts after Jesus was born. So we're actually skipping right over Christ- the Christmas Day moment. So again, the nativity set that has the wise men and the shepherds and the stable, probably not the situation we're looking at here. You did have shepherds and animals there um, on Christmas Day, but this was much later. Now, our account in Matthew's gospel Uh, Matthew's now giving us the story that's happening months later. A few clues help us to see that. First, there's the Levitical law for women in terms of purification after they give birth. Uh, And then there's a few words that are listed out here that are different from Luke's gospel. So the word that's used for an inn or a place of residence while you're traveling is a completely different word than the word that we have here when the magi arrive to the house. Now, no longer an inn. Additionally, the, the Greek word that's used for child is different. In Luke's gospel, it's, it's, it's little infant baby. It's the Greek word for like a, a, an infant who's nursing. Uh, the word that's used here is the generic word for child. And even another word that means little boy. So Jesus, uh, some commentators think, is, is got to be somewhere after a couple months to maybe two years of age. There's a window with which he might be here. So... Good luck with your nativity sets at home. It's fine. Keep, keep them the way they are. That's all right. But I'll make sure that we get our context and our bearings straight here. Uh, the second thing that I wanted to have a bunch of slides for that I didn't make this morning, but I'll tell you about, is the options for the star. This is one of the coolest things, right? Verse 2 says, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star. Boy, what is that? I'll tell you, folks, I, I love science. I actually love astronomy. And so this as an interest of mine has been something that I've really dug into, which is part of the reason I get my sermon notes so late to Wendy. because I'm, I'm just continually digging and digging through this information. I want to give you just four options because nobody knows. No one knows. And maybe you've seen there's a really good documentary that's out there. There's many books that have been written out there. Four options. What is the star? Option number one. This is what I think it is. I think it was a comet. Um, a comet is an extra uh, outside of our solar system body that comes in. Uh, it has a um, perihelical orbit that comes towards the sun and then away from the sun. It follows precisely the wording that's used here, recorded by Matthew, from what they saw. So a star that shows up in the east that's, uh, that's visible in the morning, 
And then again, it appears, and, and you'll notice that they say, when they saw it again, this is verse 10. So it disappeared and then it reappeared. If you've ever seen a comet, you know, this is what happens with comets. They appear at night and then they disappear as they go around the sun during the day. And then as they're making their return loop, they'll show up again now at night, at dusk. So as the sun is setting, you'll see it again. One other reason why I do think this, there's a lot of reasons. I'll just give you one other one. Um, a word that is used, if you look with me in verse 9, it says, and when they heard the king, they went on their way. The star that they saw in the east went ahead of them until it, this is the phrase, stopped over them is what the NIV says. Uh, the Greek here is histemi, and it means stood over them. So there, there's a lot of writings about comets in Greek literature. Not a single time is the verb histemi used for a star. Do you know what it's used for? For a comet. That's because if you ever see a comet, what's unique about it? It doesn't just show up like a blinking star. What's a comet have? It's got a long tail. And so as, I don't know if you know this either, it, it's not the direction it's going. Sometimes the tail could be pointing the direction it's actually going because the tail always points away from the sun. And sometimes it looks like it's standing just straight up. Uh, it's, a, it's a big time clue that I think lends this to be a type of comet. But maybe it wasn't. Second option, and there is a really good documentary called Bethlehem Star. He makes a very compelling case uh, that this is not a comet. Instead, it's a, it's a planetary transit. So it's planets that are, that are coming in conjunction. So this happens regularly. In fact, with the outer planets, they'll do a little loop-de-loop uh, because we're on the inside. And as we're going around the sun, we move faster. Then uh, you didn't know you were going to get an astronomy lesson in church this morning, right? We go faster around the sun than the outer planet. So from our perspective, it looks like they make this little loop. And dependent upon the astrological meaning of the stars that they're around or the other conjunctions with those planets and those meanings, you could derive some sense that there may be a king in Judea who's going to be born. And so maybe that's what it was. Maybe it was a planetary transit or a conjunction with planets. Third option is some otherwise unknown celestial body. There's been many who have written that they think it was a type of supernova. None of that really fits the account that's here. I think that's probably pretty unlikely. Or the fourth option, uh, which is that this is just supernatural angelic phenomenon. That it's not actually celestial in the sense that it's outside of our local uh, uh, arena, but it's, it's in the atmosphere. It's here close to Earth. It's isolated particularly to the Middle East. And that's why you don't have other accounts uh, written down by the Chinese or those in the East recording this. So which is it? Should we take a vote this morning? Decide which one? I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure what it is, but I do think it's kind of fun to, to parse it out and think it through. Ultimately, none of that has too much bearing uh, apart from maybe an Old Testament reference for our study this morning, but a few observations that I want to make from this as we're looking at the devotion of the Magi. If you're keeping notes, the first is this. Jesus is seen as king from his birth. Jesus was not crowned king. He didn't earn his kingship. He didn't become a king. He didn't achieve royalty. What, what can a baby do? Grace, what can a baby do? <laughs> cry and, and poop and right, cry and poop right, and sleep. That's what a baby can do, right? So G- Jesus here is not crowned king based upon anything achievable in him. Rather, it is who he is that determines his royalty. Look with us, look with me back into the text 
In verse 1 and 2, it says that the Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king? That's all they needed to know. I didn't become king who is born king. Now this immediately makes Herod nervous because Herod has many kids. In fact, if you know anything about Herod the Great, he killed a bunch of his sons because he's super paranoid about uh, his power. Remember, two kingdoms, kingdom of God and kingdom of, help me out, kingdom of men. That was all Herod's world was the kingdom of men. And he didn't just have a baby. So what do you mean, been born king? One point of the nature of Jesus's royalty that is ascribed to him because of who he is. That's important for you and I to recognize. Uh, Sadie was asking me the other day if she could have more candy. <laughs> of course she is. And I said, no. And she said, why? And I said, because I said so. Because <laughs> I'm the dad. Isn't that, a, isn't that a great rule? Come on, dads. Isn't that pretty fantastic? I don't need to give you a reason. I, I don't need to make up some, right? Uh, it's because... I'm the dad, and that's what I said, based upon my nature, who I am. So she's got to respect that, whether she likes it or not, right? Because of my nature. Well, what about you? What about Jesus? What about his nature? And what position does that put you and I in, in recognizing the kingdom of God, the kingship of Jesus, as contrasted with how easily we're led astray? Second observation I want you to see is that Jesus is identified as king of the Jews, now, there is so much more than in this phrase than what I'm going to be able to cover this morning. Uh, this would be a great one for us to put in a pin and study on a Wednesday morning. Jesus here from the Magi is referenced as king of the Jews. There's a, there's a way in which we can find insight into this. Like, how do they know that? First of all, let's just cover real quickly who the Magi are. Uh, Magi are, the word is a transliteration from the Greek, mangos, which is where we get the word magic from. Like that's, it's just they took the sounds and ported them right into English. And so what are Magi? Well, they're men of renown, educated, learned, scholars. Uh, They're not kings necessarily, but they're those who kings would turn to. You guys remember the movie Aladdin? You remember Jafar? Well, he's kind of a bad example, but that that would have been like the sorcerer within the East, right? The one that the king would turn to to get advice and, and, and wisdom. That's who the Magi are. Well, how in the world do these guys know that there's been born one king of the Jews? Isn't that curious? Now, we think perhaps they're coming from Babylon. Uh, Some scholars completely disagree with that. They think, no, it was Persia. Others, it was Arabia. Great. Another situation we don't kind of know where they came from. It might have been more than one. I want to offer to you um, a a key here in the text, and it shows up in verse 2. Look with me there real quick, because you might want to make a little note in your Bible on this. In verse 2, it says, uh, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star. And then my NIV says, in the east. That's not actually the best translation of what the Greek is saying there. Rather, it should be, we saw his star as it was rising. Now, what cardinal direction do stars rise in? 
It's not a trick question here, right? You guys have got a compass. Get out your phone if you don't, right? Yeah, sun rises where? Number one star rises in the east. So translators took that phrase, we saw it rising, and they just simply translate it, well, we saw it in the east, because that's where stars rise from. That's actually not what they meant. When they said we saw his star rising, they're referencing something unique that was happening celestially that was speaking to them with a meaning. There's something going on in Judea. (laughs) Like whatever we're seeing that's happening, this is the rising of a star. It's the movement either of a a celestial object or something supernatural that is speaking to them. There is something going on west of us over in Judea. Uh, this is an article provided by uh, the NASA Aerophysics Data System, the Royal Astronomy Society. I just want to read to you as they've done study over this. This is pretty cool. They said, it's suggested that a combination of three unusual and significant astronomical events caused the Magi to set off on their journey. First, there was a triple conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter in the constellation Pisces in 7 B.C., Such an event occurs only every 900 years. The probable astrological significance of this event to the Magi was that a divine king would be born in Israel. Second, in 6 BC, there was a massing of three planets, Mars, Saturn, and Jupiter in Pisces. Such a massing only occurs every 800 years. And this was much more infrequent in Pisces. And it would have confirmed to the Magi that the king to be born in Israel would be a mighty king. Third, a comet appeared in 5 BC in the east in the constellation Capricornus. Now, that's the same thing that I think, that this is from a comet. I don't know if you're checking with the time though. 7 BC, there's a sign of planets that have meaning to them. We saw his star rising. 6 BC, Boy, we see it again. Same thing in Pisces again. Something is going on in Judea. This is going to be a mighty king that's going to come from there. 5 BC, a comet appears. Now, I don't want to fast forward too much into next uh, Christmas Eve's message as we move forward in this. But do you remember why Herod met with them secretly? Do you remember this? He wanted to find out from them. Look with me in the text if you you forget this. Verse 7, Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them what? The time that the star rose and appeared. And then if you fast forward a little bit after this, you'll see up in verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were how old? Why two years old? Isn't that curious? So here, here, if we're piecing this together, it seems, and I, I do think that this article probably gets it right, that as the Magi identifying Jesus-born king of the Jews recognized that by the rising of a star in 7 BC, 6 BC, 5 BC, the comet appears. The comet's only around for 70 days. It's actually a comet reported in ancient Chinese uh, records. That's enough time for them to see it, start on their journey to get there, have it go behind the sun, and then show up again to go right as it stood over the house where Mary and the child were. How long did that take? That whole journey started back in 7 BC to 5 BC. How many years? A little bit of math in church this morning. I really feel like that fits the whole story. 
together. It also fits the date of the death of Herod because Herod dies in 4 BC. So part of the problem with as we're looking at other options is what's going on there. But for them, it was convincing enough to say Jesus is king of the Jews. Now, I put a key word in here and you might change it on your notes. It's not just seen as king of the Jews. He's identified as king of the Jews. This happens again and again and again in Matthew's gospel. Here we have it in chapter 2, verse 2. Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? Matthew 28, Pilate's the one who asks. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? It is as you have said, Jesus replied. After Pilate, you have the soldiers. They strip him and put a scarlet robe on him, twisting together a crown of thorns, set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. Then the Gentile government puts a sign on the cross. Above his head, they placed a written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. A little bit verses later, you hear coming from the chief priests and teachers of the law as they mock him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. Who is Jesus? He's the, he's the king. He's the king of the Jews. It's not, a, it's not a title that he has to earn or ascribe to himself. He's simply recognized as king of the Jews. Now, we're going to come back as to why that's significant here in Matthew chapter 2. But that's our second observation. Number three, Jesus' kingship is messianic. Now, this, oh, we miss this as Gentiles living in the time. that We miss this. But if you lived back then, this would have, this would have blown your mind. In fact, for me, it is almost a, a, a complete paradox as to how the religious scribes were able to report to Herod. Remember, Herod asked the question, hey, where's Messiah going to be born? They, they get out their... Old Testament, well, they only had Old Testament. They get out their Bibles and they're flipping through and they find it. Micah 5 2. They find it. He's going to be born where? In, in Bethlehem. Do you know how far away Bethlehem was? It's like five miles. It's like Channing. That's as far away as it was. And what do those teachers of the law and the scribes do? Do they go to see? They don't even go five miles. Does that make sense to you? If you knew that the Messiah was going to be born there, and you've got this rabble of wise men in your town all claiming they've got celestial evidence that the king's going to be born. And you're going to do what? You're going you're to stay at work? You're going to stay home? Too busy? You can't make five miles? I can't, I can't really believe this. Jesus' kingship. It's messianic. And I want us to see this from Micah 5.2 because they actually, they actually they get it wrong. Now, I don't know if they get it wrong or Matthew records it wrong. It's actually a little dangerous for me to claim that something in the Bible is wrong. But look, you, you decide. Look with me in the text, chapter 2, verse 6. Here it is. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least of the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Is that what Micah 5.2 says? And the answer is, not really. Here it is, Micah 5.2. You can look, you can look at, you can find, for, find the book of Micah. It's a little hard to find. You can find it. Here it is. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you're small in the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Look what they left out. Whose origins are from old, from ancient times. 
Now, what we have here is this paraphrase about shepherding Israel. And that's what verses 3 and 4 continue to outline in Micah 5. So they're, they're kind of paraphrasing it. Why did they leave this part out? And this kind of blows me away. Because this shows us he's not like any other king. Jesus is not like any other king. He is the Messiah king because his lineage, his origin is from where? It's from ancient times. It's old. Goes all the way back to the beginning. I'm reminded of the words of the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That's Jesus that we're talking about. Now, here's another little clue as to maybe why this is left out. It may have been that those who are working with Herod, because remember, what don't they do? It's in Bethlehem, and what don't they do? They don't travel to Bethlehem. It may be that they are suddenly suddenly not really wanting the Magi to find this king, because they like their kingdom of men. They like their power. They like the position that they're in. There's another king? Mm, we'll, We'll see about that. They may have known that there was for them a particular Jewish descendant who was elevated, promoted to the position of chief magi over in Babylon. You guys know? You know the story? There there was a, a, a group of Israelites who were taken away by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, and one of them was named Daniel. And Daniel by God's mercy, was given insight into dreams and spoke to the king and became the chief magi. He he became like the guy in charge of all the magi. This is centuries before what we have happening right here. Now, what do you think Daniel would have done if he was chief magi? My guess is he would have been training them to listen to what God had revealed that there's going to come a king. So I have this passage for you. This is out of Daniel 7. Watch this and see if you catch the connection as to why they left out part of Micah 5 too. This is from Daniel. He says, as I looked, thrones were set in place. All right, so we're talking kings, kingdom of men, authority. King, uh, thrones were set in place. And the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. His, his hair on his head was white as wool. His throne was flaming with fire and wheels all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing out before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Who did God reveal this to? The chief magi. And now we have magi from the east, very likely under the skill and tutelage of Daniel, claiming the time has arrived for the ancient of days. And so those scribes, those chief leaders as they went into Micah, yeah, they left out that little piece about this ruler. Do you find that curious? I find that a little curious about that. And what you and I need to make sure that we don't miss, that they might have been trying to cover up. You didn't, you didn't know that the news back then was fake news, right? You didn't know that, that all the way back then, right? They were trying to cover something up that we need to make sure that we catch, which is simply this. Jesus's kingship is messianic. 
messianic. That means he's not just king. He's the one who is coming to save you and I from death, to be crowned, enthroned king of kings. Number four, Jesus's kingdom was revealed in the heavens. This is pretty obvious. It's a little bit hard to even, even miss this, right? But all the way back to verse two, we saw his star in the east as they travel on. Once more, the star goes ahead of them and then it stands. That's, by the way, language is not used for a star. Language used for a comet. It stands over the very house. I find that incredible for a few reasons. The first here, coming all the way back from the book of Numbers 24, uh, this told about the Messiah. I see him, not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. So you should have been looking where? I mean, th- th- this is what it said. So you should have been looking. The thing that I find incredible is that it is attention unto the heavens, God's creation, that then reveal to those who are looking the coming of the Messiah, the King of Kings. Um, some, I, I, I remember seeing uh, letters from my mom when I was in college, and I, I kept them in an envelope. I had some from my dad, and then I had some from Emily when we were dating. You ever have like a little box you just kept, little cards that meant a lot to you? Put some from my grandma. Um, there's something that, I don't know if you have this ability, but it was almost without even realizing it, I can just look at the handwriting and I know who it's from. Like, I, I don't know how I learned this. Just over time, somehow picked up on, I know what my dad's handwriting looks like. I know what my mom's handwriting looked like. I think all of you, if you've received a note from Emily, know what Emily's handwriting looks like. Little hearts over the eyes, right? That's from Emily, if you get that. Yeah. Isn't it incredible that you can identify somebody just based on their handwriting? Do you know what the heavens and all creation are? It's got God's fingerprints all over it. And so if you're looking, if you're looking, do you know what you'll see? You'll see God. And that's not something that was hidden. It wasn't cloaked. It wasn't tucked away in a library. Where was the message of the coming Messiah proclaimed? In the heavens. It was proclaimed for everybody to see and to catch. One other little note here. Uh, There's a couple translations that instead of the word scepter right there, they parallel this because Hebrew parallelism with the word comet. Because many times a comet would be used in ancient writings referred to as a staff, a stick, or a scepter. Why do you think they would call a comet a staff or a stick or a scepter? Because of the tail, because of the long tail. So there's another little clue that might just, little, little bit extra why that might be a comet. So, All right, Jesus' kingdom revealed in the heavens. Number five, Jesus' kingdom is for all nations. Just a few places to see this. Number one, obviously the Magi coming from outside of the Jewish tradition. They're going to come and worship uh, the King of Kings. Uh, Micah 4, uh, 5, 4. This was uh, at the end of that little passage, right? He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Who is this king for? Just the Jews? He's, he's for people in chaining and Segola too. He's for, he's for all of us. Um, I'm going to skip over this one, but uh, Jesus' kingdom is for all nations. Lastly, Jesus' kingdom is announced by worship. This is pretty important for all of us. Verse 2, they ask, where is the king? 
We saw his star in the east. We have come to worship him. If you look at verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary. They bowed down and worshiped him. Uh, It's critical that when you recognize, not based upon performance, but upon their nature, who God is, that you and I would then follow in accordance with the appropriate action. And in this case, and in every case, it is worship. That's how his kingdom is announced and seen. Uh, The other day I got home from a pretty long day of uh, hospital visits and traveling. And as I walked in the door, my whole family was sitting on the couch watching Home Alone. No one said hi today. No. No no little girls ran and gave me a hug. I I was like, what's going on here? What is is this all about? I said, I'm going to go out and try this again. Let's see if we get this right. I went outside and I opened the door again. And yeah, the TV got paused and Sadie King gave me a hug. And that's right. That's right. What's, What's right for God in your life? What is the behavior and the action that is deserved of God in your devotion to his kingdom and his kingship. Shouldn't it be pausing whatever you're watching? Shouldn't it be getting up from wherever you are? Shouldn't it be like the Magi who traveled to see and then brought gifts for him? Because this leads us to only one of two conclusions. As we look at this text, there's only two responses to King Jesus. And interestingly enough, you have the wise men who are interested in pursuing Jesus, and you have Herod who is interested And pursuing Jesus. Do you realize that? Like both of them have parallel paths. But you only have two responses. Either you will be threatened by Jesus' kingship. Because there's only two doors. The kingdom of men or the kingdom of God. And in so doing you will plot against him with your life. I actually think that this is somehow worked its way into the church. Thankfully, I don't see it here, and I'm watching very keenly for it. But this is what has happened in many churches, where Jesus is going to be a threat to their sin. Because Jesus commands holiness, and we don't like holiness. We like to do what we want to do. And so do you know what we have done? Do you know what some Christians have done? All we need to do is twist the words of Scripture. So they no longer mean what they clearly mean. And what are we doing? We're plotting against the kingship of Jesus when we do that. Now, I hope you don't find that in your life. If I'm honest, I know there's a temptation to, to either justify behavior or wash it away or look at the culture around me and define sin no longer as sin. Why? Why am I plotting? Because Jesus' kingship is a threat to mine. It's either I get to be king of my life or he is king of my life. It's either or. And so you see this with Herod. In fact, I wrote down some of what, do you know Herod's nickname? Herod the, yeah, what? That was kind of humble of you there, Herod, right? Yeah, Herod the Great. Well, watch this. Here's what Herod did. He refurbished and rededicated the second temple, rebuilt Solomon's temple, made it beautiful. He also built the Masada Fortress in the Judean desert. He built the Herodium who do you name that after, I wonder? Uh, southeast of Bethlehem, it was a circular fortress and a palace that was on the top. 
He made huge city walls in Jerusalem with a palace and a fortress and a theater and a stadium and an amphitheater. He rebuilt, actually not rebuilt, he built the port city of Caesarea, which became like the key town of trade that transformed the coast of the Mediterranean right there. Caesarea, by the way, is named after Caesar. So he was doing that to garner favor with Caesar. It was a landmark for trade in his time with planned streets, an underground sewage system, an aqueduct. Whose name is attached to all these amazing things? Herod. And so if there's another king with another name who's going to come into my life and my world, that is a threat. Your other option to King Jesus is to worship him. And if you do, hopefully you do exactly like the Magi did. And what did they do? They presented gifts. Not because of what Jesus does, but because of who he is. This is critical in your discipleship as a Christian. Your life is going to have hardships. It will. Jesus promised this. So you don't worship Jesus because your life is good when things are going your way, when you're getting all your prayers answered. That's not when you worship him, not for what he does or doesn't do in your life. You and I worship him for who he is. And I'm so thankful for Donna's children's message this morning. Ho- hopefully you caught it, because this, this is totally the key of what I want to share with you. How, how do you give a gift to Jesus? I don't know. <laughs> right? They did. Clearly, they went there, they found them, presented them gifts. Well, that's going to be a little tricky for us. How do you and I then, do we, should we not do that? First of all, I think it's a beautiful thing that we give gifts to one another on Jesus' birthday. I think that's beautiful. Right, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he, what's the verb? He gave. And so you look a lot like God when you give. Um, In our house, we're teaching our children how to manage money. And so we pay them allowance. And I have not paid Sadie allowance for like two months. And she has not forgot about that. Like, (laughs) she's been keeping track. And so it worked out pretty well for her in December because I went to the bank and then I, I... a little bad at math. She gets, she gets how many dollars she is old. So she's eight years old. And I had missed um, um, six weeks of allowance. What's six times eight? Yeah, I pulled out 50 bucks. And I thought, I'll give her like 20. I, my math was a little off. Like I had $2 left after uh, that was it. So I gave her the $2 as well. Do you know what she did with that? She went out and bought presents for everybody. How awesome is that? She took what she was given And she used it to bless others. Now watch this. I as her father, watch this now. What do you think I do at that point? Do it? Do you think I'm like, well, I ain't giving you anymore. Well, what would what would my response be if then she had a need? What would I, as a loving father, do for her? Do you think I'm gonna provide? Because what do I see her doing? Using what she's been given to bless others. Any need that she has, you can count on it. I will, I'll, I'll meet that need because I see the generosity in her life. So how do, you, how do you do this? How do you give gifts to Jesus? Now, I know you've all got presents wrapped up, hidden, tucked away somewhere like we do in our house. It's very likely, hear me now, it's very likely you have those tucked away for folks who you know and who have the ability to give you something back in return. Am I right? Is that the case? I, I want to challenge you. 
How cool would it be for you to give a gift to somebody who's never going to give anything back to you? That you would be doing it, watch this now, in Jesus' name. When I was a kid, I've told you this story before, but um, my mom was practicing bell choir over at Our Saviors, over in Kimberly, and I got dropped off at Big Boy because I was starving. <laughs> and I ordered a cheeseburger, and I was by myself, and the waiter um, was just chatting with me a little bit. But when it came time to come with the bill, instead of a bill, he gave me a little napkin. And on the napkin, it said, Ryan, God has given me much more than I deserve. So in Jesus' name, this is for you. And he paid for my cheeseburger. Think of how small, how much did a cheeseburger cost in 1989? Like two bucks probably, right? Thanks, inflation. I'm telling you, I remember that moment. I remember that to today. That meant so much to me. Tiniest little thing. Just, just paid for a cheeseburger and did it in Jesus' name. Might have really changed my life. Like I held onto that napkin for a long I don't know where it is. It's probably in the attic somewhere. I, I, I loved that because it was so meaningful to me. Here's my challenge to you. How do you give a gift to Jesus? Ask yourself, what is there in your life that you might sacrifice without anybody knowing? That you might present to somebody who can never pay you back that you would do it? In Jesus' name. And I think that is how you act like he is king. And you will be worshiping him, giving him a gift, just like the Magi do. So what do we do with this? I just have three questions for you as we wrap up this morning. I want to ask you the question, why are you seeking Jesus? Are are you seeking Jesus for how he might meet your prayer needs, make your life better? Because that's not why we worship him. We worship him for who he is. And actually, on this point, I think this is critical. This is where you and I miss things. Because you know what I want to do with my free time? I want to go bow hunting. That's what I want to do with my free time. Right? When I have a chance to do... You know what I want to do with my money? I want to buy a new fishing rod. That's what I want to do with my money. Except I remember when... I remember when my dad was dying. You know what I didn't care about then? I didn't care about bow hunting. I didn't care about fishing. God somehow works this into the pain of our lives. That when you experience difficulty and pain, all of the rubbish disappears. It, it just instantly disappears. You see this instinctively with little children. Uh, the other day, Sadie was busy with something, right? And she smashed her toe. And what do little kids do when they smash their toe? And then they call up for who? Mom, yeah. Did, did you see when pain showed up, whatever was so important didn't matter anymore? What mattered? Being with mom, getting help. That's what matters. And for many of us, we think sometimes we seek Jesus for what he could offer to us rather than seeking him for himself. Jesus is what matters more than what Jesus can provide for you. And it's usually only when we go through hardship, when we go through those like tough phone calls from the doctor, when surgery's looming, right? That we sometimes now can see clearly, ah, I know what really matters. It's not what I get out of Jesus. It's Jesus himself. That's why I'm seeking him. Ask yourself that question. Why did you come to church? Why do you worship God? Hopefully you get clarity as the spirit leads you as to why you are seeking him. Uh, number two, are, are you watching for him to show up? What did Jesus say when he left? He's coming. He's coming back again. Oh, and there's a lot that can distract us, isn't there? There's so much that draw our attention away. When I, when I was a kid, occasionally I would hear, wait till your father gets home. 
Now, if I was acting poorly, I'd be watching for my father to get home. I would. There's another reason why I would watch for him to come home. And sometimes it was because I cleaned my room and I was so proud. I couldn't wait to show him. Both cases. Do you know what I'm doing? I'm I'm watching in both cases. One, because I know punishment is coming. The other, because I know pride and, and praise is coming. Because I worked hard. And so... Are you, are you watching for Jesus? Are you watching for him? Because he's going to come again. What were the wise men doing? Wow. Wow. I mean, they were watching. They were taking note. And their lives were changed from it. It wasn't hidden. It was in the heavens for all to see. Do you get it? Same with us. We need to be watching. Lastly, what will you give to Jesus this Christmas? And you give to somebody who can't give back to you in Jesus' name. Because there are only two kingdoms, the kingdom of men, where they might sing your praise higher and give you back what you deserve. Or the kingdom of God, where we give freely, not in our name, but in the king's name. Amen? Amen. We pray together this morning.